morning. This is very close. Welcome to Portico Church, Arlington. My name's Jason. It's my privilege to welcome you here this morning. We'll be in this room a couple weeks, maybe two or three weeks. Um, if you were ever in the band, this is going to make you feel comfortable. I was, alto saxophone, represent. Um, so it, this is good. This is great. Um, we're so thankful that uh, we have this opportunity at H.B. Woodlawn uh, to be here to partner with them. But you know what? They used their stage too, so um, that's, that's what they're doing right now. So we'll be here, um, and we are currently in 1 John. Today we're going to be in chapter 3. We're breaking into new territory, verses 1 through 3. Uh, so you can put your thumb there in your Bible. If you don't have one, we have some right in the back as you walk in, and we encourage you to grab one. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about something in this text that greatly concerns you, but virtually nobody talks about it. It's not something that we walk around saying, it's not something we walk around talking, but it's on our minds. In fact, one of the reasons you know that it's on your mind is because everything that we look at, that we listen to, every movie that you watch, every piece of literature that you read, every book follows this script, and it answers this one question. It's the question that bounces in your head. Uh, so let's just look at that for a second. What is the one question that every movie answers for the protagonist? Every single one. What is that question? Anybody? Who am I? That's it. Every book, every movie, every play. Who am I? Let's test that for a minute because it's seeking true self. It wants to know who am I. We're going to go to the easy movies, the ones we all understand. Mulan. Who is Fa Mulan? Is she a good Chinese girl who's going to listen to her parents and do the right thing? Or is she a fierce warrior who's going to protect her dad and save China? That is what the whole movie's about. Who is she going to be? Yes? All right. Maybe one that you've seen that's a little more of your generation. Frozen. What's Frozen about? Is she an evil ice queen, Elsa, or is she the good queen? Which one is she going to be? Um, this gets to our hearts. This opens up our imagination. My granddaughter is already singing songs from Frozen. It's almost like a prayer, right? I'm not going to sing it for you. But this speaks to our hearts. Okay, I'm going to stop here for a second. All you dads out here, I'm going to give you a dad joke. Why can't you give Elsa a balloon? Because she'll let it go. All right. So if you're a dad, you can use that and you can say it so much that you'll make the room empty because they're sick of hearing it. But um, I think I heard that or made it up. I have no idea. Listen, these movies matter to us whether it's a, an animated Disney movie or something that you're watching, because you feel this tension. You're obsessed with finding true self. This is a tension that every one of us feels. And when we watch these movies, when we read these books, it feels like they're connecting to our story. We feel like, hey, this story gets me. Maybe not exactly, but I'm seeking that as well. And it kind of opens up that pressure that I have. Um, we watched this movie not too long ago called A Quiet Place. It's a creature feature. It's about a monster. So if you don't like it, don't watch that. But it has John Krasinski in it and uh, Emily Blunt. And I just, I love watching for how the plot unfolds to answer this question. And at one point, the basic plot is that there's these, these, this family and it's a kind of a uh, end of the world scenario and there's a monster chasing them around and they have to be very quiet. But at one point, Emily says, um, who are we if we can't protect our children? That's the point of the movie. Who are we? 
Are we going to be good parents or bad parents? And that is the tension that the entire movie rolls around. And that's the question you're asking at this point. Who am I if I don't get this promotion? Who am I if I can't find a spouse? Who am I if I can't get rid of this spouse? Who am I if I never achieve any level of success in my career? Who am I? This is the question that we pivot on, and we're obsessed with it. The world is going to disciple you this way. If you're going to find true self, what you need to do is you need to live out your deepest, truest emotions. Live those out, and you'll find true self. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, when you anchor your life to something movable like that, it guarantees unhappiness. You're never going to find that moving target. Here's what scripture says, and here's where we're going. Your true self is revealed in this, in being loved by God. That's it. If you will allow yourself to be loved by God, if you respond to what he's giving you, if you will receive that, you will understand yourself in a way that you've never understood before. And this is where our text goes today. So before we read this text, how are you answering that question? We don't ask it when we look in the mirror. At least I hope you don't. That's kind of weird. But it spins in the back of your head. Who am I? Who am I really? What makes sense of my story? What narrative would make sense of the life that I've lived, my past, my present, my future? Who am I? So let's go to the text. This is going to be 1 John 3. We're just going to do the first three chat or the first three verses. 3, 1 through 3. The, word, the verb to be is all over this. So just listen to what John says to this church. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. This is an unnerving question. It's one that can't be answered by looking in the mirror. It's one that can't be answered by listening to a song, watching a movie, reading a book. We have to look to you. And for many of us, for most of us, that is just terrifying. Lord, my prayer this morning, our prayer, is as we open up your text, Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Would you teach us what it means that your love is such that it makes us something? It makes us your children, children of God. So we ask even, Lord Jesus, as you intercede for us at the right hand of the Father, that you would help us to understand what this means. We ask your blessing in this time. We give it to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this text is very simple, but it has huge implications. Being loved by God is essential to your being itself. Who you are 
is going to determine how you live. We get that backwards. We, we fully believe how we live or how we are will determine our identity. It does not. Um, being loved by God is essential to who we are, to our being. Now, this is not new information. This is something that we've been walking through in First John. Uh, last week, we talked about this idea of aggressively abiding in Christ or abiding in God. Uh, chapter 2, 28 ended this way and said, And now, little children, he's speaking to us, abide or remain or aggressively stay in him. It's a big command to us, and it's good. But now today, John is going to give us encouragement. He's going to explain to us why we need to do that, why that matters, why that's the best thing that you could ever hear and pursue. So he's encouraging us and teaching us why we must abide in the love of the Father. So two simple goals today for this text. One is, I want to explain what does it mean that we are loved by God? How does that actually make us a child of God? What does that mean? So we'll open up the text. But beyond that... Um, I want to show you in as many ways as possible, and we're going to walk through them, how being loved by God, how being a child of God absolutely changes your life, how it changes who you are, and it changes how you are, how you think, how you feel, how you live, how you act. So that's what we're going to do. What does it mean that we're loved by God and identify several ways that being loved by God completely changes who you are? So first, who you are. Verse 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given us. This is not a suggestion. The way he writes this, this is an imperative. This is a command as, any, as much as any command that John's going to give you. So he's commanding us to take a look at God's love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Uh, the idea here is that John has seen something that is so fantastic, and he's experienced it to the level that it changes his entire perspective. He can no longer live the same way because he has walked with Jesus, he has done ministry with Jesus. He has ate with him. He's seen him cast out demons. He's seen the empty tomb. He's seen the resurrection. This has been his life. So he comes to this church and to us and says, you've got to see this. You've got to see this. Uh, This reminds me of, I think I've mentioned this before, but the 24 Apollo program astronauts back in the late 60s trying to get on the surface of the moon. uh, When they were all doing their evaluations, The medical team would say, in fact, this one nurse specifically said, I don't know what happened up there, but they all have the wild eye. You can't settle them down. They look like there's something going on in their head that just they're unsettled. It's almost unnerving to be around them. And it was true. They had seen something nobody else had seen, which was the earth that was so small you could cover up your thumb. They just didn't go into orbit. They went to the moon. When they came back, they had a different perspective. To some degree, they could not live the same way that they had been previously living because of what they had seen. Uh, they understood that basically we're not the center of the universe. We're like an ant on somebody's hand. And it changed how they lived. John is saying this. I have seen the empty tomb. I have talked to the risen Lord. He has instructed me. you got to see this forever changed. We are called children of God. But why? What does this mean? Hear this, being loved by God makes you something. If you receive his love, if you will walk by faith, it changes who you are. It makes you a child of God. This is what he's telling us. But being loved by God, how? In this way. Um, Understand, friend, that you and I desire something that is much beyond God's love. 
we want, if we're going to use this idea of, of children, what we really want is emancipation from God. I don't mind you loving me, but as long as that love does not extend to anything that I must do. We want to be emancipated from God to the level that um, we are Lord of our lives. This is the essence of sin. This is what destroys a relationship with God the Father, and it leads to death. So God loves us in this way. He violently secures your redemption, your salvation, your reconciliation with him. Not generally, but specifically. He doesn't just put you in the same room. He wants you as his child because that's what you are. So he overcomes this desire to live our life on our own terms and makes us a child of God. How this works out in history is that God's love was fully expressed in the person of Jesus. He is the true son who became our substitute, our ransom, so that we could be fully and finally reconciled to God in his family. Uh, Romans 8 picks up on this very well. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that is Jesus. Why? In order that he might become the firstborn of many brothers. This is identifying the resurrected Lord as your big brother. That's weird. Just be honest. you got to live in that tension. He's the firstborn of many. If we're going to receive this work that God has done for us, if we're going to walk as a child of God, you must get comfortable with the fact that Jesus is the firstborn of many brothers. You belong to him as a sibling in a way. This is who you are. So that's what God's love looks like. But what about a child, a child of God in what way? Well, God's love transforms you. Uh, There's one thought process that goes like this. Well, this is nice. This is kind of poetic. But honestly, aren't we all kind of God's children? Aren't Aren't we all creatures of the living God? And in one respect, that is true. But that's not what he's talking about. Um, We could say, to some degree, we're all related, right? But if you look at your own kids and your own family, or you look at a family photo, guess what you see? Resemblance. You can see the resemblance. Sometimes when your parents come to church during the holidays, I'm like, oh, I know who you belong to, right? I can see the resemblance. This is what he's saying. Beloved, you are children of God now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, that's Jesus, appears, we shall be like him. So, God making us his child in this respect, it transforms our lives so that we more and more as we walk in him, as we learn to trust him, we start to resemble him. This is what holiness does. It transforms your life. You begin to get the courage to walk the road that God has put before you in faith uh, and it transforms you. So it's not just that it transforms you, you're also adopted. we We could sit here and talk about this the whole day. Um, we like to live our lives in the courtroom, especially when we talk about such terms as justification. God has made us right before his eyes. We no longer have any debt, no longer have any sin. This is transactional language. This is courtroom language. It's in the Bible. It's true. But we never transition past that. God is not just your judge. In fact, he doesn't even say that here. He says he's your father. So you also have to live in this tension. God doesn't stay judge. He moves 
off the bench, comes down to you, moves him in, moves you personally into his family room, puts you at his table that you might be one of his children. This is all of his work that you might belong to him. You are an adopted child of God. Um, Romans 8 verse 15 goes on. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, no, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the fact that you're a child of God should be so real to us that God's spirit that dwells within us and among us makes us or makes us want to cry out, Abba, Father. This is adoption. In fact, when you think about baptism, you do realize this is God giving you his name. Adoption's not really adoption unless you get the name, is it? You never really know what's going to happen, do you? But God gives you his name. You're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's very purposeful. God puts his name on you in baptism, and you are risen out of death into newness. So it's that, but it's also forever. This is not for a season. You're not on probation. We're not trying it out. This is eternity. God's love makes you a child for eternity. This is the lens as a child of God you must begin looking through. You have to. It changes how you deal with success. It changes how you deal with suffering. It's going to change how you deal with disappointment. It's going to give you a new perspective that you are a child of God, not by your work, but by his. Um, I spoke with my sister last week, and, and I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, she lives in Paradise, California. And if you remember, that this is ground zero for the most intense fire California's ever had. 90% of the structure's gone. Lots of people died. And she's calling me and she's talking and we're chatting and just catching up because it was after Thanksgiving. And, you know, I'm trying to be a positive person. So as we're getting to close and hang up the phone, I'm like, hey, have a good day. I kind of caught myself. You don't tell somebody who just suffered a fire, have a good day. And she starts laughing. She's like, guess what? We weren't there. I have no people that are dead. My house is still standing. Every day is a good day. Every day is a good day, Jason. Right? I, I, did, I didn't know this was going to happen. This, it, it, just, it just so worked out that I survived. My house stands today. This is the perspective that we have as the children of God. In one respect, every day is a good day. We belong to God. That is, you don't change that. You belong to him. You are a child of God. So being loved by God such that it makes you his child is essential to your life. This determines who you are and how you live. This is who you are. This is it. I wish I could explain it any better. I don't know. He does a great job of it, but I just, I know that in your heart, you don't believe it. You're like, I'd like to be a child of God. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if I could live my life to a level that God would accept me as his kid, that God would accept me as his child, that he would love me in that way. I wouldn't have to work through my life to get him to love me like his own. No, he's done that. He's done that. This is who you are. Now, we're going to switch here. I'm going to do something I, I normally don't do in sermons. 
I'm just going to power through a list of what it means that you're a child of God. I'm going to overwhelm you with it. This is what the text wants to a degree. Wants you to be overwhelmed with the fact that you are loved by God to this level. You belong to him eternally. You are his child. Um, This is the goal of the text. So I'm going to give you eight ways that being a child of God changes your life. Eight ways that who you are as his child change how you are or how you live, how you think, how you feel, how you experience life. These are very important. Now, some of them are going to be like, "Huh, okay, some of them are going to strike hard and say, I don't think that way. I don't believe that way. I have a hard time believing that I'm a child of God like that. So this is the pressure on you. This is where God wants you to give something up. This is where he wants you to trust him in a way that you are not currently trusting him today. This is where you find it inconceivable that God could love you like that way. So this is, I'm just, I'm asking you, when you hear that, you need to let God do business with you. You need to speak to him. You need to let him um, disciple you through this. So eight ways being a child of God changes you. going to be quick. We're going to put it up on the screen. So if you want to write them down, you can, but I'm not going to sit around and explain much. I want you to hear all of them. All right. So first one, how does being a child of God change you? Or being a child of God means this. One, you stop living for the approval of others. This is huge. We live in Northern Virginia. You are successful if people like you. If people don't like you here, you don't go far, right? If people like you and want you around, you, I mean, the sky's the limit. So this is going to be not just countercultural. This will be a death sentence for you. But if you are a child of God, this means that you must stop living for the approval of others. Verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. We should be called this. And so we are. So when you have the smile of God on your life, you can deal with the frown from everybody else. This is what we are to know as children of God. Um, I remember I used to play football when I was a kid. And I remember this one specific game. It was rainy. Uh, and I was a linebacker. And I, don't, I wasn't great. I was okay. And we were losing uh, within a touchdown. And this, this running back came through the line right to me. And I just stood there. He turned that way. And I just sit there. And it was, it was wet, and I fell down, and I felt like an idiot. And we got back into the locker room at halftime, and the coach stopped everything. He said, Connor, you're having a good year. What's wrong with you, man? We're going to lose this game. And being a, well, you know, a well-adjusted teenager, I was like, yes, sir. No, I mean, it crushed me. I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I wish I knew. If I knew, I probably wouldn't be on this football team, right? What's wrong with me is I, I just didn't tackle the guy I wanted to. Uh, so... We are built for performance. But what happened after that game was what teaches me what God's like. My dad was there, and so I'm embarrassed in front of my dad, right? Who wants to be the dad in the stands? You're like, oh, good job. We lost because of your kid. Uh, but we were going to go hunting and camping that weekend afterwards, and he just, he just didn't care. He's like, let's go have fun. Right? He didn't want to talk about it. He wasn't. You have the approval of your Father in heaven if you are in Christ, period. That doesn't come and go. That doesn't mediate. You have it. Learn to live in it, number one. Number two, stop living in the fear of rejection. This is connected to number one. But there's a verse here that deals with it. Um, It says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Does he know what that means? Jesus didn't, his life didn't end well. You don't know this, right? We understand the gospel. 
If you're going to be known by God, you're going to be obscure and unknown to the world. It's going to happen. There's going to come a day where people find your faith unacceptable. So ask yourself this. Does your life make sense to the people around you? Do they look at you and go, yeah, I get this guy. I get this gal. Yeah, They're doing great. They're trying hard. Does your life make sense to the people? Or do, do they wonder about you? Why does this person do this? Why does this person spend their money that way? Why, why would you go to church in 2018? Why, why do you think that way? Why do you believe a book that was written 2,000 plus years ago? Who are you? Does your life make sense to people or does this verse make sense? Hey, the world doesn't know you because it didn't know him. And if you're united to him by faith, you're going to be obscure to people. Obscure. So being known by God will create obscurity in your life. Number three, you need to stop living to escape your past. If you're going to be a child of God, you have got to deal with your past in this way. First of all, the text says that God has given this love to us. This is past tense. Do you understand that God knows your past? He offers you free grace and he calls you his child. We, we're okay with the part that says he's given us love and that we should be called children of God, but we don't believe that and so we are part. You choke on that. If God has forgiven you, if you've trusted him, you have got to start living in light of his love and grace and stop trying to self-atone for your life. But I've done some things. Okay. Maybe you need to make them right. And maybe you're going to live with the consequences for the rest of your life. Okay, I get that. But you've, you've got to let God save you. You've got to let his work be enough and stop living to escape your past. That's not, you are a child of God. It doesn't make what you did right. It makes you new. All right, so stop living that. Number four, um, your suffering doesn't define you. If, if you're going to be a child of God, you've got to deal with your suffering different. Two ways that we deal with suffering. I deal with one. If you've been a Christian for a long time, um, you will deal with suffering in this way. It's not fair. I'm one of the good people. I read my Bible. I went to church. I've made a profession of faith. I've been baptized. What else do you want from me, God? Life isn't fair for me. I deserve better than that. I'm a child of God. Good grief. Why would, I, why would God want me to suffer? And so how that plays out is one of two ways. Self-loathing. I'm like, well, I must have done something wrong. God's punishing me, so he's trying to teach me something, so it's about me. Or just anger, anger at God. He's not getting it right. He doesn't see this in my life. So you, neither one of those responses has anything to do with the gospel. Um, we have this idea that because we're saved, we should have a better life than Jesus had. You're not going to have it. You, and it's not fair. Some of us are going to suffer in incredible ways. And some of us virtually aren't going to suffer who are believers very much. It's not equal. It's not fair. We can't expect to be unified to Christ and have a better life than he did. His words, right? If we're going to be his disciple, we can expect that our lives are going to be like just circumstantially better than his. Now, the simple fact that matters is they usually are. Um, but that's by his grace. Here's what you want to do with suffering. Do not anchor your life to your own suffering. Anchor your life to the suffering of Jesus. 
right? His suffering belongs to you. Do you know that? It belongs to you. And in it, in his suffering, in the cross, in his resurrection, he is revealing his personal love for you that makes you his child. Now, can you live in that? Suffering is awful. It doesn't make it happy. It doesn't make it good. You shouldn't seek it out. But you can't anchor your life to it. So number five, also, your, your strength doesn't defend you. If you're going to be a child of God, I hope you're strong, but the tyranny of your strength and your ability is endurance. How long can you keep it up? How long can you be strong? How long can you perform to the level that people like you, that your spouse wants you? How, how long can you do this? This is the tyranny of success. I remember when Tom Brady won one of his Super Bowls and he was interviewed. This is probably 15 years ago. It was a great article because he's like, I, it's, I don't, it was great to win the Super Bowl, but I'm back in the gym because it's not enough. And quite frankly, I wonder if anything's enough. And he was just lauded as a hero, which is funny because everybody knows Joe Montana is the best quarterback in the world. So, this, yeah, right? But this very successful, rich quarterback, he's like, yeah, I won the Super Bowl, but now I need another one. And you see people that are exceedingly wealthy. Bill Gates, well, instead of being an accumulator, now I'm just going to give my wealth away. I need to be somebody different now. Your strength cannot defend you. If all you have before God is your strength, your ability to persevere, your willpower, you will not sustain. God's children use their strength differently. Use it to serve others. You rest in his strength. Number six, um, being a child of God, being loved by God, means that your future is incredibly bright and secure. Do you believe that? How good is your future? Is it good? Hmm. I don't know. I'll let you know in like 20 years. How good is your future? You know where this, this idea that your future is incredibly bright, aside from scripture here telling us? When we go to India, which we're going in the end of this month again, last year, um, these kids have no reason to be happy. They don't have parents. They don't have money. They have the very basics of life, right? They've got this wonderful church that brings them in and makes them kids of this church. They have a future and you know it. You see it on the video you watch. Something's going on in their head and in their heart. They know God as Father in a way that we probably just don't even comprehend. And it plays out in their understanding of what their future is. And they're realists. They know that it may not work out well for them because they don't have a society that deals well with outcasts and orphans and those that don't belong to anyone. But they do have a hope that is unshakable. And you see it, you hear it when you talk to them. You see it when they hang out. They understand that their future is wrapped up just perfectly in the future that God has for them. The fact that Christ is resurrected, the actual outcast, and he's now at the right hand of the Father, and he's been vindicated, well, that's good enough for me. I'm in him. I don't know what's going to happen for the next few years on this earth, but I know that it's not going to be outside of God's will, and future's good. Future's good, right? I invested well. I'm in Christ. So you're going to have a bright future. Number seven, um, being a child of God means you are never alone. This seems so empty, doesn't it? Especially to those of you who are very lonely. But it's true. If you are a child of God, you are never alone. 
How is that? Well, he says, we see what kind of love the Father has given to us. He didn't say to me. That we, not you, should be called children of God together. Here's what it means. You have an ongoing fellowship with God. You do, personally. Well, it doesn't feel like it. Do you pray? Do you read your word? Do you? Just be honest. Because a lot of times when I don't feel that, I just don't really have time to mess around with the Bible or prayer much. Are you pushing into that? And, you know, you have a worldwide family. You have a worldwide family. We're going to go over and see them. We're going to go to India. It's a family reunion. That's what's so fun about it. You got a local family here. Does anybody here know what you're struggling with? Does anybody in this body know you're alone? Would you even commit to being in in a relationship in a discipling relationship in this body, you are never alone. You are indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. He will move you along. He will push you towards these people. He will push you to prayer. He will pull you along to get you out of yourself and into relationship with the living God and with others. So being a child of God means you're not alone. Even when you're alone, and some of us suffer some circumstances where we really are alone. Let's just be honest. Even in those times, you are not alone. And number eight, you live in anticipation. You don't have a, an empty hope, as Pastor Johnny Reeves said. You don't have just optimism. You have real anticipation because of something. What does it say? Verse two, but we know, I love that. We, we know that when he appears, that's Jesus, we shall be like him. That's weird. Because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. All right. Let this capture your imagination. There's going to come a day. It might be today. It might be 50 years from now. You're going to see Jesus face to face. That's 50 years is short. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to see him today? I don't feel ready. I'll just be honest with you. I'm like, I got a few things to do. I got to pay a bill. I got to be nice to my neighbor. I need to get ready for this. No, no, you're going to see him. And you're not going to see him. You're going to see him as he is. He will be fully revealed as the King of Kings, risen Lord, creator, Messiah, Savior, God with him. You're going to see him as he is. And in doing so, if you are in faith, you're going to see your life. Your life will be vindicated. Not that everything you've done is right, but the fact that you are trusting in him will be rewarded. And you will be seen as a child of God. So let that capture your imagination. So much so is that it purifies us. It makes holiness real to us. We're going to see Jesus. We want to be like him. We will pursue holiness. Uh, You will have a new and a glorified body. You know what that means? Your suffering's over. It's done. You no longer experience unmet need. Internal sin, external sin, injustice, wrapped up, destroyed, gone. That's your future. Um, Imagine this. Taxes are coming up. Have you ever got a tax refund? No? Never filed taxes? Okay. So if you file taxes, let's pretend that you're going to get a $5,000 refund. That's big, but it's possible. If you filed your taxes at the end of December or the beginning of January and you knew you were getting 5000 bucks coming, does that change your life in the present? 
Oh, yeah, it does. I've seen it. You, you, all of a sudden, you get happier. You're like, oh, this is fun. I'm going to do some shopping online. Hey, let's go to a movie. Believe it or not, to dinner. I, this, this jacket's ratty. I should get a new jacket. It changes how you live because the certainty of that money hitting your bank account in, what, six weeks or so changes how you live now. You live in anticipation of that money hitting you. Now, that's a poor example of the anticipation that we should have, but we should have it. So when we spend time with people, do they experience someone who is living in anticipation of this truth that we are going to see Christ and we are going to be seen as righteous with him? Or do they see someone who is absolutely overwhelmed by their circumstances and their pursuits and their accomplishments and all the things they want to acquire? Or do they see someone who has tasted the Lord and knows he is good and they delight in this and they think about their past and their present and their future differently? Who are they seeing? Who are they seeing? Are you living as a child of God? Um, When I was a teenager, I came to Christ. It was the most insecure time of my life. And we were at some youth function and we were some other college kids in Reno. It's a long story. I'm not going to tell you. But this one gal, she was a college kid at UNLV. She was like, Jason, um, the world's going to chew you up and spit you out. But here's what's so cool. In Christ, we have an identity that's unshakable. I'm like, I don't, what? what does that even mean? I, I didn't, had no idea what it meant. But as I grew up, it became, those words never left me. If you understand that by faith you belong to God and that does not change, It changes how you live. Who are you? Can you honestly answer that question? Where does your mind go? Who are you? If you reject God's love, you're lost. I can tell you that. If you receive it, you are his child. You're his child. Is that enough for you? That God should call you his child, that you belong to him forever, that anything that happens to you in this life has to submit, even your suffering, has to submit to his purpose for you and has to serve as your slave. Circumstances? Can you live in that world? Can you trust him to that level? Can you live as his child? This is what, this is what he's calling us to do. This is what it's like to be loved by God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. Um, that you give us this kind of love. Another kind of love that you're speaking of here is aggressive. And it does violence to us, Lord, in our our desire to live on our own terms. And I pray that you would just give us great confidence, Lord, in your love for us and let it take us where you're calling us to go. Help us to submit and to surrender to you in this. In the name of Jesus, amen.